Welcome to Breaking Down Bits, a conversation about great comedy bits with the comedians who wrote and performed them. Breaking down bits. I'm Brian Gendron. Hey, I'm Drew Jordan. Welcome back. We're so glad to be um, back on the run here, uh, busting out some fresh podcasts, uh, talking to some great comics, talking the business behind the scenes, the the writing process, all that. Um, excited to be to be doing it again. Sorry for that short little break, but um, things have been going been so busy here. And it's all good things. So thanks. If you're in Houston, thanks for coming out and supporting at the riot, all the shows that have been going on. Uh, thanks to everyone who has been popping in to that Tuesday virtual feedback, Mike. Yeah. And, and look, you know, we haven't been as, able to be as consistent with the feedback, Mike. You know, quite honestly, we're, we're so damn busy with the show. And uh, Tuesday nights is one of our few nights where we actually get a break from comedy. So we have not been able to be as consistent and won't be moving forward. Not to say we won't do it. We'll do some we'll, we'll do some pop up mics because we do enjoy that community. We call we cultivated and created over the year and a half, maybe year year that we did it. Uh, but so it's, it's not goodbye, but it's see you later. It won't be regularly doing those on Tuesday nights. Yeah. So get out there and hit the open mics guys. <laughs> yeah. Hit your actual open mics. COVID's <laughs> over. All right. Yeah. Now they're like, I think we're like mask free most in a lot of places now, like things are really, um, loosening up. So hopefully you're, you're able to get out and, and be a part of your local community now more than ever. And, yeah. And hopefully those, those mics helped you get more and more prepared when those, when everything uh, got back to normal or as normal as it can be. Uh, but that's not to say uh, not to go back and listen to all of our old episodes. Uh, everything's been great thus far. Breaking down bits.com is your access to everything we've done, our entire catalog, including our last episode with Ronan Hirschberg. Drew, you got any callbacks? Yeah. I think one, one thing that was interesting to me is that you hear a lot of comics talk about finding their voice and it takes X number of years to find your voice as a comic. And it, it sounds like kind of a mysterious thing, but Renan kind of talked about how it, it actually isn't some pivotal <clears throat> suspenseful aha moment. It really is just coming to terms and, and being honest about who you really are. And I think his take on it is that when you find your voice um, it's more of just realizing, oh, what's inside of me and who I am as a person is important. It connects. It works. Um, and his whole thing was don't push down the thoughts that you have. Don't dismiss your feelings and your thoughts and go, who's going to care about this? That kind of becomes your honest voice uh, as a comedian. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I recall he had a uh, let's call it a poem. I think it's something that, that somebody had shared with him. It's called Be Prepared that you would read before any big sets that he would have. And and it was something that uh, he texted to me. I had a huge set in front of like the biggest crowd, 2000 plus people. And uh, and I murdered it. And it's all because of Renan. So uh, yeah. if you if you want to get that that secret poem, go listen to the episode. Uh, it's the poems called Be Prepared. Or the episode's called Greyhounds with Renan Hirschberg. And you find it breaking down bits and anywhere you get your podcast. All right, man. You want to bring in our guest? Yeah, let's go for it. Cool. 
Nick Yusuf is an L.A. and New York-based comedian, writer, and actor, and host of the According to Nick Yusuf podcast. Nick's comedy has been featured on Hulu, NBC's Last Call, At Midnight, Viceland, and on podcasts such as The Joe Rogan Experience and WTF with Mark Marin. Aside from stand-up, Nick is a contributing writer for Esquire and Brooklyn Magazines. Hey, Nick hey. how are you? Cool. Man? That was a cool video. Yeah, killing it, man. Uh, you're you're bi coastal. That's cool. I am. So trendy. A, I know it sounds so pretentious to be like. <laughs> I try never to use that word. <laughs> I just say when people ask where I live, I just go. I go. I'm mostly in New York. You know, and then if they go, oh, well, what does that mean? I go, well, I go back and forth and, yeah, I'm on the road a lot or whatever. I, I just, I try not to use that, <laughs> that word. It just sounds like you're telling people you're better than them. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it does. It does. Well, thanks so much for, for doing the podcast. Excited to have you on it and, and get into um, a lot of stuff with you. Um what we like to generally start out in is uh, just talk about your your start in comedy. Tell us how, how you started. Where were your first gigs? Where'd you grow up? And then we can get into some of the breaks that kind of got you to where you are now. So, well, where I am now is not very exciting. I'm on a, <laughs> I'm on a small uh, side road in a small town called Julesburg in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> how um, did you get there? Okay, we'll get that to that later. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so starting, I started, um, in Los Angeles, which most people don't do, uh, only because I grew up there. So I'm, I'm from the Middle East. I'm from Lebanon. I moved here to the States when I was a kid, when I was like four or five or something. Um, and, uh, and we just happened to land in Southern California. And then, um, I ended up like starting in LA cause I was like, well, I mean, the entertainment industry is fucking right down the street. So um, I figured that or moved to New York because, you know, I just didn't know. There was no real, you know, internet to go look all this stuff up or there were no podcasts about comedy to where you're like, well, how did everyone else do it? So I just found a bunch of open mics in the back of like one of those like weekly magazines. It was called LA Weekly conveniently. And it had all these like listings for like, you know, music, open mics and comedy and like spoken word poetry and shit. And you would just still look in these like tiny cause they would pay by the letter or whatever. So people would take out these like miniature ads, you know? <laughs> so you'd have to like, look and see like, does this one allow comedy? Does this one, you know? So I found one at a place called the Ha Ha Cafe in North Hollywood, uh, which is still there. It's still a comedy club. They moved oh, wow. s since, uh, since I started. And that was the summer of 2000. Um, and I was 18, an 18 year old kid. Wow. Um, and I remember I was like working this job, uh, like a fast food job. It's just a shitty, it's at this place called New York burrito, which doesn't make sense as a name. I know. Um, and at the time I didn't, I'd never been to New York or really anywhere. So any, everybody would come in and go, why is this place called New York burrito? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, you know, New York's not known for burritos. I'm like, I don't know anything. I'm a teenager. Just order your food and get out of here. You know? Um, but I told my boss who was like only 23. It was like, he, he 
started a business kind of young because he pursued music a little bit and then he got out of that and was like, I want something stable. So he was like younger and kind of understood what I was interested in doing. And I told him, I go, hey, I found an open mic I want to do. And it's like in the valley. Is it cool if I leave work like a half hour early? And he was like, he's like, you're going to be a comedian. I was like, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, that's so out of nowhere. I'm like, we didn't know each other too well. And I was like, yeah, it's this thing I've wanted to do since I was like 13. And I've never really told anyone about it, maybe like one or two friends. And he just thought that was so cool because he had just finished, you know, trying to make it in music. He'd been in a couple bands. He was like, dude, you can leave an hour and a half early if you want. He's like, I think this is so cool. Um, he's like, take off now if you want to like, you know, collect your thoughts or whatever you got to do. And so I went to that open mic and, and the Haha ha Cafe was just transitioning from uh, a Mexican restaurant that had some music on the weekends to a comedy club. So like they didn't have shows every night. And it was a barely a comedy club, but what they did have was open mics Monday through Friday. Oh. Cause I, I guess at some point they realized like, Oh, if we allow these like comedians to come in and charge them five bucks, you know, to buy like a drink or whatever they can perform. That's just free money for us. We don't have to do anything. And so they just did it, you know, five days a week and on weekends they had shows. So, Again, not knowing where anything was or who anyone was, I just went to that Monday through Friday every day for like a couple of weeks. And then I met some other open micers, you know, and we were all just, hey, what's your name? And is there anywhere to, else to perform? And everyone was sort of like, how old are you? Like, are you, you, you know, are your parents coming to pick you up? And they were honestly asking, they were joking, you know, they're like, are your, is your mom, I had like zits still, like ble bleach tip, I had short spiky hair. This is the summer of 2000, so that was still sort of in, you know. Um, and from there, I just sort of expanded, you know, I would find another coffee shop that had an open mic and a bar if they would let me in to perform, you know. Um, and uh, and it went on like that for a couple of years. And then I went, I did the comedy store open mic. And that was like a nightmare back then. It was like you had to show up saturday night after the show ended so two in the morning and that's when they'd put out a list at the front bar and everyone would be there and back then you know there wasn't a comedy boom really like they had 40 slots and a lot of times it wouldn't even fill up with 40 names now i've heard it's like 150 people show up for this fucking thing but i would show up at two sign up and then the next day you would go back at like 5 p.m they would draw the names then you'd leave again and if you drew your name you performed the next week it was like this crazy system <laughs> i mean it almost like deterred people they're like they're basically like if you really want to fucking do this and if you want to perform here here are all the hoops you have to jump through you piece of shit is basically <laughs> how they sort of viewed it and, you know, again, I was like a teenager. I had nothing else to do. I was going to community college during the day, you know, and I lived at home with my parents, you know, so I was like, yeah, uh, that's what I'll do. And I had the <laughs> shitty job during the day. And I'm like, yeah, I'll show up and come back and keep doing it. And I did. And I would draw my name sometimes. And it was just it was this whole fucking process. And then my friends eventually started getting jobs there door, as door guys. I wasn't allowed because I was uh kid and i remember doing the open mic though 
and Ari Shafir, who's uh, we're really good friends now. At the time, I didn't know him. I just met him. He was hosting the open mic, and I went on stage and I, you know, made some joke about being like an eighteen-year-old kid that like still sleeps in a race car bed or some shit. I don't even remember it. <laughs> but like, he follows me off stage and goes and comes up and he goes, "Hey, man, are you really only eighteen? And I was like, "Yeah," thinking like, you know, this is cool, right? And he goes. And he kind of smiles and goes, wow, well, you're not allowed to be in here. He's like, what? And he's like, yeah, you can perform, but you got to go outside after. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I went out there and then like he would fuck with me and go like if it were raining outside and I tried to stand in the entrance, you know, where the, the stairs are to go up into the original room. He's like, no, no, you're you're past the threshold. The threshold is for 21 year olds. You got to be right, right. You know, just just kind of teasing and being a dick. And then we became, you know, good friends and stuff, but it was kind of well known around there that like this kid is not allowed to be in here. So I would just do the open mic. And then the second I turned 21, I was like, get me a fucking job at this club. And by then I knew kind of everybody that was working the door there. I, I did open mics with all these guys, you know, and uh, and they all vouched for me and got me a job. And I started answering phones there and and that sort of that chapter was like kind of the beginning of uh, like the, the end of me doing open mics and the beginning of performing well, as an employee. But I was like completely immersed in the comedy store. I was like, I don't want to do another open mic again. I'm all store all day, all night. I got to get in here, be in here because it was brutal, dude. It was like it was very brutal. You had to really like commit everything to there. And like everyone was fighting for very very few positions you know like n barely anyone got passed and there were barely any employment opportunities for door guys and shit so you had to really go for it and everyone was an asshole and all the older comics were trying to like you know talk shit to mitzi about you know comics so they wouldn't get spots it was like it was a it was a nightmare of a place but um, but you know that's what made you a, a great comic according to all the e-true hollywood stories and all that you know <laughs> Yeah. Like all, a lot of my favorites started there, like Bill Hicks and, and, and Kinnison and Pryor and like all these guys. And I was like, you know, this is this is the place I'm going to I'm going to fucking do it. And then I just like head down and just push forward, and like kept going there. It, it's so interesting that so many comics started off as like door guys and on staff there. Yeah. And they just if you were just because I don't know if you're on staff there you got a little leg up on some stage time and got to got to step away if if you're the door guy you get a break to go do your set and then come back to being the door guy or uh sort of back then it was um it, they only had sunday night uh open mic so the the way the open mics worked there were uh 20 people for the open mic and then a little section called like friends and family employees and then that would be all the door guys which back then was not a lot of people at all and then after that, from 10 p.m. to 2, was the paid regulars could come pop in and work out stuff. It was called pop-ins. Yeah. So that was the only night that you were guaranteed three minutes of stage time every week, which does not sound like a lot at all. But, you know, there were only two other major clubs in L.A., the Laugh Factory and the Improv. They didn't even have that. They didn't even really hire comics as door guys at all. But the store had that as a tradition. Um, 
So that one night a week in front of a real crowd at a real comedy club was like, it was worth it, you know, and you get to meet people and you got to like get to know the older comics and you got to watch comedy there and like watch anyone from like, you know, a guy that got passed a month ago to Andrew Dice Clay if he came in or Chris Rock or whatever. So it was like, you know, sensory overload in terms of like what what you could get out of it outside of the stage time. But what I did was I would take that Sunday night stage time. But since I was spending so much time there, I would get to know the bookers of the shows in the belly room, which were like outside promoters. And so I was working in the parking lot and answering the phone. So I kind of got to know these people. And I was like, hey, can I open the show or go on like dead last and do three minutes or, or whatever you want to give me? And a lot of times they would they would do it. They'd put you on first or last. And so I started, I took a hit in stage time, which I would be able to get up every night of the week to an open mics to like, you know, four or five times a week on only book shows or at the comedy store, which was like, you know, I didn't, I wanted to go up every night, but I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of open mic sets anymore. It was just, I was only developing bad habits of anything. So mm-hmm. um, I made it work for me. I made it worth the, uh, all the time I was I was spending there, but um, in the end, I think like you're, the greatest the greatest thing you can get out of that club is since it's like kind of like a fraternity brotherhood type sort of thing, you know. Especially back then when it was awful and like no one really wanted to be there and no industry went there. You guys hung out and you were in the fucking shit together, you know. Like you were, it was like you were in war in the trenches, and you know it was only you guys were going through it, that kind of thing. Um, and those bonds and those friendships were like, that's the biggest thing I got out of that. Like when people now go, how the fuck do you know? So-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm like, we all were just equals back there. Like we, I would hang out with Joe Rogan in a parking lot and he was much better than all of us and was much more successful, but we all hung out and talked like we were all the same person. And you can't find that shit anywhere else at any other comedy club, any other scene anywhere in in America. Isn't that right? I mean, you talked similarly in the beginning where you had you established sort of that beginning click. Right. Those are the people that are all at the same level, just trying to figure all the shit out together. And I think everybody in comedy at some point gets their little beginner click. Right. And you. Yeah. You, and you probably maybe even stay in touch. With some of those guys perform. Some of them probably don't. Whatever. But, A lot of them are, are dead or in jail. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're for, all gone. It's for really real. rough out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, a few of them. Yeah, I mean, like uh, Ari Shafir, Steve Renazizi, and like a few other guys that either transitioned out of stand up and now are writing whose names you probably like, wouldn't really know. Um, but yeah, there's like a core of us that still are friends, still like you know, if so and so's having a barbecue, we all go over to a su- or a Super Bowl party and that kind of thing, but. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people do kind of fall off. They quit or they they move somewhere and, you know, are a part of a smaller scene in the Midwest or whatever because they just were done with L.A. and, and the get whole a real job, and, whatever. There's lots of there's lots of reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Or quit altogether, get a real job. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing that you talked about was this privilege that we have where you get to see these comics, you know, for us in Houston, you know, you'd see them every night because you're in L.A. But for us in Houston, whenever there's a visiting comic coming through on the weekend like you, right, when you came through, uh, there's a privilege that comics get to be in the back of the room and watch that person perform that is often abused 
by, you know, circling in the back and having your own conversation. It drives me insane. It's those clicks, right? The, you know, the new clicks and they don't respect the room or it's somebody that's, it's older and they just don't care. But, uh, but yeah, we, we got to remember, guys, in comedy, that is a fucking privilege. And uh, make sure you, you either you use that privilege and not abuse that privilege. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that. it's funny with comedians. It's like we are always so ready to criticize stuff or talk about or make fun of or whatever that, like, you put a few comments in the back of the room. It's like, good luck keeping them quiet for more than, like, three minutes. You know, and sometimes it's like a good conversation. They're talking about how awesome the person is and like, Oh, did you see how he changed this segue from the night before and all that stuff? But like, yeah, it gets, get out of hand and shit. But, um, the store was pretty good about that because it was always so dead and so shitty back then that like, (laughs) we, we weren't trying to make it harder on, on each other. And like, it took barely a whisper for you to hear Cause again, there were 13 people in the fucking crowd. So you're like, I can hear every word you're saying, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so, so after your time in the store, like where, what were the big breaks that happened? Where were the big moments in your career that kind of like took you those, those leaps forward, those steps forward that really made a difference for you? Well, again, I'm in a shitty small town in Colorado. So those breaks <laughs> have not come yet. I'm still, uh, <laughs> you're quite uh, successful point, though. No, I wouldn't say that. I do. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm driving a Toyota Corolla rental. I'm telling you, it's not that. It's nothing. <laughs> Things are not that great right now. Um, no, it's, I mean, it's okay. Um, I would say the, the first, my, my breaks for me personally, and I think that this has allowed me to stay in the, the world of entertainment. Um, my breaks are like personal breaks, you know, like things I've sort of wanted for a long time that probably don't mean much to other people, but you know, it's got to mean something to you. And that's what's going to keep you there. Like if if my whole thing was like, I want to get on the Tonight Show and I kind of held on to that forever. The Tonight Show has changed so many times over the years that like eventually I was like, well, I mean, I don't really care if I ever do the Tonight Show or like anything like that. But like the one I had when I very first started was Get Passed at the Comedy Store by Mitzi Shore, which I did. And that was like still to this day, because it's so so few people have gotten that. And I, I mean, I was the last person that Mitzi passed. Or Argus Hamilton, who's like a, a comedy yeah. star legend, is still, yeah. he would always bring me on stage as Mitzi's last project. He's like, he's like, boy, you're in luck tonight. Mitzi's last project's here. And people would have no idea what that meant, you know? <laughs> um, but that for me, because she was like on her way out of like, um, not life, she lived for a while after that, but... Of, of handling this, she passed it on to this this fucking idiot Tommy that took over for like yeah. ten years, right. and he was passing people sometimes as Mitzi. It was like it was so crazy, um, it, yeah. But that was one, and that really allowed me to be taken more seriously by a lot of the other comics there because they were like, "All right, man, you're you're one of us. You're performing on these shows. You're not wearing the comedy store shirt anymore as a door guy. I went and got a job like waiting tables and shit." And, um, and that allowed me to open for guys like Bobby Lee and Steve Byrne and Mark Marin and like all these guys. And like that elevated me a little. And, you know, it wasn't like I got on a sitcom, but for me, it was like, I took a step up in, in like legitimacy in, in what I was doing. And I would say the next thing after that, that wasn't, it wasn't like a, a big thing in terms of like something you saw, but, I was in an acting class in somewhere in the Valley. And I remember that 
this guy. Uh, his name is, he's, a, he's actually a well-known actor. His name is Max Greenfield. He was on New Girl. And he was in the class, and he is such a good actor. He can do comedy and drama, and he's a, the sweetest guy. He's like the nicest guy. So we were in this class together, and I was objectively so fucking bad when I first started acting. It was so awful. It was just, it felt bad. I couldn't, the, act, the teacher was stopping us every two minutes, going like, what the fuck are you doing? What is this? That's not a choice thing, you know? But I worked at it because I wanted to get good. And then he one day um, pulled me aside and he goes, look, man, you've made a, a lot of progress as an actor. And like uh, my at the time, girlfriend, she was a, a casting director that they're, they're now married and have kids. He's like, I want to I want to uh, recommend you to her and I want her to bring you in for stuff if, if she likes you. And I was like, wow, really? And I was like, yeah. and it was I had no way into the world of acting before that. I was like, I don't know what you do, you know. And I've, I've gotten a commercial agent and, and maybe done a couple of commercials or something. And he basically just put in a call and, you know, was like, check Nick out, you know, like bring him in for something. And I auditioned for three or four things. And then I booked a small like co-star role, like under five lines on a Fox pilot. And, and it was like, all of a sudden I'm like in the screen actors guild and I'm like sitting on set with like Jerry O'Connell and like Jason Bateman was the director. And I'm like having conversations with them and shit. And I was just like, what is this world? Like what the hell is going on? And it was, it was like a mind blowing experience because it was like overnight, my opportunities became wildly different. And Nothing in my personal life really changed. I was in the Screen Actors Guild. I could audition for more stuff. And, and you're taken a little bit more seriously by agents. I was able to get an agent and that kind of stuff and audition for more TV shows and, and stuff like that. And I would book small little co-star roles and stuff. Um, my part ended up getting cut out of that show. And then they I think, reshot that show. So I was never, I was gone, completely gone. But I was still like in, in SAG and like going out for stuff. And, and to him, to Max who's now a very successful, he's on like a CBS show and he was on New Girl for like 10 years or whatever. To him, it was just this little sort of like, oh, I've seen you make some progress and you're a nice guy. Let me just, you know, call my girlfriend and have her bring you in. And it, to me, it was like, if he just didn't feel like it that day or he didn't, if he quit that class and went to another one, like who knows how long it would have taken. And like, it was a little moment, but it meant like a, a lot to me. And it's like those little it's those little steps that like end up, you know, allowing you to, you know, do bigger things down the line. And like, you know, I, I've never had a one big break. I've never had like, I auditioned for a sitcom and then I was on that sitcom for seven years and now I'm touring the nation and everyone knows me. It was like, I started comedy at a time where a lot of that was changing. Like you, they weren't handing out development deals at comedy festivals anymore. And like, you know, you were, you started using social media, like the early days of MySpace, people saw what Dane Cook did with that. And the things were kind of branching out in different directions. And you could still get a break like that. But it never really, that never really happened for me. I was like, always in this weird space of like, I'm not white enough. And I'm not like, Middle Eastern enough. You know, like, there were like casting directors that always were like, you know, um, we like you, but we're looking for someone more Arab looking. And they wanted someone like dark and like 
swarthy and evil, you know, just racist shit like that. Or I would go in for like a, a white character because I can pass for I can pass for anything, you know. Um, they would go, oh, you're not, you know, you're not white enough, or your last name is Yusef, or you're Middle East. And I'm like, but who cares? You know, there was like a lot of that kind of stuff. And I don't blame not getting things, but there, there certainly were roadblocks and things that I had to sort of come to terms with. But stand up never, you know, I, I could always just do that. And I could always, you know, um, have that, have total control over, over that kind of stuff. And, um, did you feel so, like that your acting stuff, the, the acting experience and the classes played into your stand-up? Or was it a, did you kind of feel like it was more of a separate uh, option for making money and performing and, and for I would your artistic say it, expression? I would say it helped. And in ways I didn't think it really would. Um, I would say anything that involves writing or performing is going to help the other thing that you're doing you know so if you're doing stand-up and you're like oh well, i don't want to do sketch and improv still take an improv class or a sketch writing class because all of these things are within comedy it they will help you like identify how structure works with jokes and and that's right and just what's funny in a scene because yeah when you're doing stand-up you're your own scene you're up there you're you know you're performing and it like those things help you like get a laugh out of like you know moving your hand or like like a facial expression in ways that you wouldn't think as a as a stand-up you know unless you already have a theater background and you probably like you know naturally are using that stuff but um the acting thing really it helped me more with like with like commitment to certain like things you know or like um mm, yeah. just really like feeling the emotions in a bit you know about pretending to be mad like kind of going for it a little more because like I, you know acting really helps you like hone in on things like that and i was never paying that much attention to those things in, in stand-up but um yeah i think all of that shit helps if you take an acting class take a writing class take a sketch improv class like if you can if you have the 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 tools and the time and like and all that just do it there's like there is you while you have the time while while you're able to like get in there early get that shit in there early and it will all help you down the line and again like with the store when you're meeting people when you're making friends and stuff like mm. you know take a few improv classes like make a new friend like you don't know what those guys are going to end up doing they'll remember you or they'll see you and like it's like not to sound too networky because i'm not good at that at all but you know make them like make genuine friendships but like you never know where people are going to end up and you're never going to, you never know what you're going to end up liking. You might love sketch writing. You might, you know, and one day you're as a standup, someone might, or, or your agent might go, do you want to submit a writing packet? And you'll be like, thank God I took those writing classes. You know, I'll, I'll know what to do, but, um, going on Joe Rogan was, was pretty big. Uh, getting, I was, I was put on uh, funny or die did a, a, a list of 30, con, 30 comedians under 30 that you should look out for. Um, and that they didn't even tell me they were doing that. I would just appear. Hmm. I just, my phone one day just exploded with notifications, <laughs> Twitter and all these things. And I was like, what is, I thought, I don't know what I thought was happening, but I'm like, what's happening on Twitter. And I go and look and I'm just getting hundreds of followers that turned into that like 1500 followers in one day. And it was at the time when that could happen on Twitter. It was like the way it wasn't like overwhelmed. 
And I'm like, what did I do? You know, and I, <laughs> I had to like go backtrack and find out what the fuck I did to deserve. And I went and found this article. I was like, oh, cool. And that, you know, that gets you more Twitter followers. And going on Rogan was big when my first comedy album came out. That got me like a couple thousand followers in the, in the, in a matter of like minutes. It was, it was insane. And that kind of stuff got me some more, you know, road opportunities and, and, and things like that. Um, putting out that first album when I did a, a, um, a podcast with all things comedy, um, they helped make that possible and promote it through the other podcast. Bill Burr mentioned it on his podcast and that like, those things help in little ways, you know, like to me, it's been a lot of little things. Um, but yeah, like all, all those things, like, and then just the hard work you put in between to kind of help make those things turn into other stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting a, a few things, but when you're on the breaking kind of, down bits podcast, it just yes, elevated yeah, yeah, your yeah, career yeah. to the next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll be able to upgrade this rental. I'm sure. By the there it is. <laughs> well, well, let's, let's, let's go ahead and pivot. Uh, we'll get into <clears throat> writing and performance. Uh, we'll start that by playing a, a quick clip of uh, some of Nick's standup. I don't like talking to girls on the phone. No one talks on the phone, though. I think that's pretty cool now, right? For a minute, I missed it. I'm like, what happened to a conversation? I'm like, fuck conversations. Those are the worst. <laughs> I don't want to hear from girls, my friends, family, any of that shit. <laughs> to me, phone calls are the new dropping by unannounced. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're just driving down the street, and then, whoa, dude. What the hell are you doing here right now, man? I'm driving a motor vehicle down the street, eating a sandwich and texting someone else, and you're just gonna show up out of nowhere right now? No, you're being rude is what you're being, all right? So next time you wanna call me, how about send me a text beforehand and let me know, all right? What a dick that imaginary friend was. <laughs> so you get into texting with women after about i kept it i kept it tight um yeah. so, so i love that i mean, i think everybody has that thought now that's just where we are right you get a phone call you're like fuck you yeah. why is why is your time important why are you steamrolling me right now that, when was that i haven't watched that clip in literally a decade that's like yeah. a 10 or 12 year old like maybe i, I, don't, I really? don't even know i think Whoa. so it's like how old are you back? I mean, how, about how old are you there when you're like at Laugh Factory? Like, you're are you like 21 years old doing this at Laugh Factory? No, that was um, God, I, I I honestly don't remember when that bit was. It had to be like 2012 or oh wow, something like that. Yeah, or two, yeah, 2011, 12, 13, maybe somewhere around there. So that was yeah, a good 10, nine, 10 years ago. Um, now everyone's got a fucking joke not that i was the first one to ever write a bit about phone calls and whatever or like <laughs> but now everyone has a joke like that so I'm, I'm glad i did it then and i'd never do it anymore um <laughs> but um but yeah that one was like that was one of those bits that audience members always would say oh i like that i can relate to that kind of shit um so i would and the extended version of it i would do a lot and then i think i put it on an album and then just like got rid of it and, and never did it again but um but the Laugh Factory would like, they were good about like taping sets and stuff. Um, 
but uh, I think they, I think they end, ended up like, I don't know, they were doing it without people's permission. I think sometimes they're like selling the material to other, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but I would never, I would never lead people to those bits as a, as, as a result of that. But, um, yeah, Do, what, but yeah what, those, what's your take on, on reusing material that's been on a special or, or something that you've released? Do you, are you a Louis CK crash it all, never use it again? Or are you kind of someone that pulls some of that back? we've talked to a lot of comedians and there's such a varied approach on what you do after you've put something online or release it in the album. Have you guys ever seen this special talking funny? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. That helped shape my outlook on that because beforehand I was like, well, you know, when people were talking about the whole hour a year thing that Louie kind of made popular, um, I was like, well, that's not for everybody. Like what a lot of us aren't launching tours whenever we want and performing literally as many hours as we want in an amount of time. And I'm like, you know, it's just, that's not sustainable unless you're at the upper, upper echelons of, of comedy. And then I watched that special and Chris Rock had a different approach. And Jerry Seinfeld was like, Oh, I'll do like 70 old 30 new and kind of mix it around and all that. And, they had different views on encores and, you know, mm-hmm. bringing some material back. Louis thing was a new hour every year. And for the encore, he would, people could request bit old bits and he would do them. Um, and I was like, okay, so every, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. And as I was getting ready to do my first album, there was no special. It was just an audio album that was like, you know, I couldn't get a special and they were too expensive to self finance if you wanted them to look good. But, making comedy albums was not. So I was like, I'm going to do that mm-hmm. until I don't have to. So I was like, what am I going to do with this hour? And with the first album, that's like a lot of, there's stuff that you've probably been doing for two, three, four, five, six, seven years, depending on, and then some newer stuff. So for that album, I was like, I am for sure never doing any of this stuff again. Yeah. And because I was, I was like, it's already somewhere. Like people can go hear it now. I don't need to keep doing it. Like, oh, this bit that no one's heard, you know. <laughs> so, I got rid of all of it and started from absolute scratch. And I knew that would help, and I knew that would make me a better comic because I couldn't fall back on anything. Yeah. And, and I was like, we'll go from there. And then the second album, I did mostly the same thing, and I was starting to go on the road more and like headline more. And then I came into a new problem, which I did not have before. I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to go on the road in a month or two, I don't have a brand new hour to go work out. And a lot of people don't fucking know who I am. So it's in my best interest to bring some older, hard-hitting stuff and mix it in with new stuff. Because it's not like my own audience is coming to see me, so they're going to be really polite about me ironing out 40 minutes of new shit, you know? (laughs) So given my personal like circumstances, I was like that, this is just what it has to be. But if I was at home in Los Angeles or in New York doing smaller sets, all of that's new, brand new, no exceptions, just new. If I bomb, whatever, it's gotta be new, get it good and get it on the road. And for the most part, I've stuck to that. Like this tour that I'm doing now that I started at your guys' show in Houston. Um, <laughs> I, I, ha- I did a few older things. I think I opened with something older and I had s- something kind of older in the middle to help me segue in and out of some bits. It was like material on my dog. I had some newer stuff and then I did some older stuff. And then I think I closed with something old 
And so it was probably like 40 minutes new, 20 older. And older could mean, you know, nine months to two years. Like, you know, it just, it just, it depends on what I need it for. Really. If I'm in a new market, no one knows me. I'll do some older shit if I'm doing crowd work and it reminds me of an older bit. And I'm like, I want this crowd to come up after and say, where, how do we find you again? So if that means doing some older stuff, it's like, okay, let's go. And, um, and if it's going to go on an album, oh, it's got obviously all new. I'm taping a special later this year and I'm starting to ask myself that question again. Like if it's going to be video and it's going to go to new and different places, how much how much new new stuff do i want and do i want to pull a couple of older bits that i didn't think got enough love that are still sort of evergreen and put those on there just to get more more eyes on me you know and it's it's one of those things i'm like big still figuring out right now it'll mostly be all all new stuff but um you know it's just part of the, that's just the fun of it though it's like you you're in control you get to decide what to do, when did, how much old, how much new. And, you know, you want to push yourself. You want to do as much new as you can. I write every day. I always try something new somewhere at some point because I just get bored of stuff, you know, quick. That's why I like crowd work too. Um, So I think that's very important. You know, you don't want to get into a habit where you're like, oh, but I want to kill all the time. So I'll, I'll, I'll always do 50 minutes of old material, you know, like that'll get you nowhere fast, but um, I would say like, you know, always write, always try and do new, but you know, when you need it, bring it out. So you mentioned you write every day and that's a sort of an open-ended question. We always ask on the show. It's, it's how does Nick Youssef write comedy? I do a version of, uh, I used to do notebook and pen only mostly cause I couldn't afford a laptop for years. You know, I didn't have like <laughs> until like 2000 eight or some shit or nine or something like that or or, yeah something like that so but i like the pen and paper habit it like you're more connected to the words you're writing it's a little slower you think a little differently than typing it just feels more personal um so i did that for a long long time even after i got a laptop i was still like 80 percent writing on paper and i write everything out verbatim word for word and I don't ever put profanity in. I let that come as it's going to come. Because I think it's just it's you're a stronger joke writer. Unless the bit is going to be a dirty, like, if you're talking about, you know, anal sex or whatever. You know, you're like, you're you're not going to, you can't really get around saying the word fuck or come or, you know, like, you can. But it's like, that's when I can loosen it up a little and go, okay, I'm going to curse probably a few times. But um, and I do, I will get dirty. I like dirty material. It's like, it's fun as fuck. Um, but verbatim, even now on a computer, um, and I have like a notepad in my back pocket and a pen on me at all times. So I can write down something that comes up, which is something it's, that's a good early habit to start is like you, if you have an idea, stop literally whatever it is you're doing and write it down because you will forget maybe not always but it's gonna fucking kill you if you do because that that little sentence or fragment of a sentence could end up being a seven minute bit that you are killing with all over the place 
just write it the fuck down. In your notes in your phone, you know, voice dictate on a napkin. And I don't care. Just write it down somewhere. That's like the biggest so true. thing. I, there's so many. I mean, how many times have we just kicked ourselves for like days going, there was something. What was it? It was, yeah, I was yeah, driving yeah. and I was thinking yeah. and uh but yeah, I think that with cell phones and stuff like that, it makes it a little easier nowadays to capture. There's no excuse not to capture. You're just yeah. being lazy or stubborn if you're not yeah, capturing. Speaking, speaking of phones, a, another part of writing, by the way, is recording your sets, whether it's video or audio. For up until a couple of years ago, I was all my my phone would be on the stool, recording the set, and that's huge for like for rewriting because you'll forget, you know exactly how you said it or you'll ad lib something that you didn't remember and you'll go listen back and go oh cool record every set listen to all of them even though it's fucking painful to do i hate it but it's like it's a part of it you got you gotta do it yeah i love i love going back and listening when in the moments where you're you're listening to yourself deliver the jokes and you are almost like listening as a third party to yourself and you're able to punch up your own jokes while you know that that moment when you're like oh i should say this or oh here's an obvious tag or an obvious direction i should go with that but i've never thought of it before because i've never listened like an audience member to myself yeah it's either you're saying it to yourself or you're reading it on a you know on a computer screen or whatever and you're right it's not it's not quite the same um and all the all those little things it's like you, when you combine all those things then you're really like working with a lot and you're able to improve your material like a lot a lot more yeah. um, effectively yeah something else we like to get into is as you're preparing for a set uh, what what does that prep look like whether it be a, a headline set or a spot somewhere and do you create a set list do you stick to a set list and also those last moments before you step on stage any last minute things you do before you before you take the stage i w- um for a shorter set like in la or new york or whatever um i if i'm doing a bunch of newer stuff i'll have like um a little set list on like my notepad or whatever that i'll have up there with me um if if that 10 or 15 minute chunk is kind of like already there but still is working i'll try i won't really have anything to reference um because it's already pretty pretty much in there and then that allows you to sort of you know wander off in different directions and ad lib stuff and not check you know the am i did i forget this or that because it's fine if you forget you know one of the tags you might ad lib another better one or you know then now you have two or whatever but um for a headline set, depending on where I am in the hour um, or whatever, I hate using that term, uh, my, my hour or new hour, because it doesn't, it can be 45, it can be an hour 10. I don't, I don't like that 60 minute limit. I don't think people should, I think they should go with what feels right. If you're, if you're at 48 minutes and you have 12 more minutes of stuff that you're like, it's not ready or it doesn't gel well with the themes, don't put it in 48 minutes no one's ever complained (laughs) that something was too long or too short if it was really good if it's not they'll be like oh when's this over you know but like Mm -hmm. it's the leave them wanting more thing i guess but um depending on where i am with that new material like I'll, i'll try not to have something um at the houston show i did if you're a guy i had my my notepad 
and it was just there was tons of stuff and i looked at it a lot and i even told the crowd i was like we're we just came out of a fucking lockdown i i, I have all this new shit i'm sorry but that's the way it's gonna be and a lot of times audiences are forgiving especially this is a special circumstance of this pandemic you know they're they get it um and if i'm doing a new material show i will have I will have as many notes as I want and I'll fucking stop for 20 seconds to look at them if I feel like it. Cause that's just, that's part of it. I used to do a new material show every, every once a month, JF Harris and I used to do one at the comedy store and dude, those, those new material nights help you develop so much material because you can do it all in one set and it doesn't matter how it goes and you get, you just get so much out of that. Um, that's something I recommend people do. If you can find a new material show or even start your own, yeah. I mean, you are going to be like, you're going to be developing a lot of stuff. We're, I'm actually, I'm actually thinking about starting cause we'll, we don't run an open mic and, and I don't really care to, uh, but we are considering starting a new material show for past comics. Uh, we're, yeah. we're just like you said, the expectation is there that the audience knows they're trying out new material and that yeah. these are, these are good comics to so let them work and we'll all have fun. It'll be the serendip serendipitous yeah. experience. And they like being a part of something new. And, and if they understand that's the situation. And a new material show with like professional comics is, a, is easier to get through because we just know what to do. And if it's not going well, or just like making, reminding the audience that this is fine. And just with your own body language and your ability to keep a crowd, you know, it's like, it's, it's way different than, yeah, than an open mic, you know, and that's not an insult. They, you know, open micers just don't know yet. So it's like, you know, there's stuff that they're not going to have the skills or the thought to even do to get through the, the sets. But they are so invaluable, those new materials. They really, really are. Uh, and for those, I just like, I just look at the stuff again. I just go, okay, bullet points. And I go up. And for most sets, the last couple years, I will... Um, meditate at some point before I go on. And I mean, that could be anywhere from an hour before to 20 minutes before I'll do a 10 minute meditation. And that gives me like 10 minutes after that. And I feel like it declutters my mind. I get, I get those thoughts of, I hope I don't forget this, or I hope this goes better. Or am I gonna, you know, find a way to do this? Or should I do this other thing? It just lets me go it's going to happen the way it's going to happen. And there's always the next set. If you forget it, just remember where you want to start and remember where you want to end. And if there really is one new thing that you're like, I got to make sure, you know, have that. But then after that, it's like, just like, let yourself be loose and like, you know, and have fun and meditating really reminds me of that. Cause I can tell myself all day long, you know, like be loose, have fun or whatever. But, um, <laughs> that extra element has been, has been really, really helpful. Yeah. That makes so much of a difference. I mean, Brian and I were just talking about this uh, actually just like last week. I think when you go into a set with an ulterior motive or an agenda of X, Y, Z jokes, you're, you want to make sure you get all oh, these five jokes or I want to try this order. If that's all in your head and it's not about creating a fun, you know, experience for the audience and a fun performance, 
it's it's really hard to have a fun that's why it's so hard i think to get a good tape is <laughs> because when you're like i want this material on tape you're it's right. it, it gets in your head and then you get on stage and you you're not your fun self or as loose as you want to be because in the back of your mind you're going don't get, get this joke then this joke then this joke then this joke and it's just a different headspace yeah this yeah making a tape is the the most unnatural thing a live performer can do because you yeah you're not you're not like as free as you really need to be uh, in order to like, you know, deliver a, a great show. That's what's great about when you start headlining and stuff, there is no time limit. So you're, you're, you honestly can go on stage and just be like, yeah, I'll get to it eventually because there's <laughs> no one's lighting you. No one's like, you know, Oh, we, we got to get the headliner on. I mean, sometimes if there's a later show, they're like, can you try and keep it under, you know, but even then you could do an hour 20 if you want. And like, <laughs> and if you like doing crowd work and like riffing and stuff, like knowing that you have endless time, it's like, I feel, I always get way more out of the set. The crowd likes it more and my material feels more natural and I, it improves because I'm able to, to verbally come up with segues because sometimes writing them feels a little like canned and just, you know, didactic or whatever. But when you're, when you're just saying the things that you want to say and like letting the next thing come, sometimes you come up with segues or you're like, Oh, that's the perfect way into this or <laughs> come up with a new tag or two or whatever. But that's why I feel like, do you feel like that when it comes to writing material, I, I kind of get the sense that my brain works differently when I'm writing and when I'm talking and yeah. so, like, if I'm in the car just trying to talk out a bit, I seem to take different pathways than if I'm sitting in a pad and trying to write the, the and try to write the same bit. Yeah, that um, that happens. Well, I mean, it, may, it might happen a little less for me. I definitely know what you're talking about, but I think like since I write everything out word for word, mm -hmm. I've always written more conversationally. So like, it's a lot mm -hmm. closer to how I talk, but there are some times where I'll write something out and it's too like jokey, you know, like monologue. -y. <laughs> and then I'll say it and I'll go, that's not how I talk. What the fuck? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. and then you, you kind of self edit and you sort of like discard words that would never fucking come out of your mouth, you know, yeah. um, or just shave off like, you know, the bloat in a joke. Sometimes you just, and you don't notice you're doing it until you listen to the set you go, Oh, I forgot to, to say that and you go, God, it actually does sound better without that. I like, I don't need it. Um, I think doing, doing both talking out of writing, writing on stage, writing out loud in your car when you're walking around and on paper and finding a way to like make all those things. One is like, that's like, you know, what your voice ends up being. I think once you're like writing as you, like Lenny Bruce said, I don't know if he I think he said this. I don't know if it was in a special, but he said, I'm not a comedian. I'm Lenny Bruce was like a famous mm. line that he had. And that is like the, the epitome of being yourself on stage. Like if you are writing only the way you talk and it allows you to really get laughs out of stuff, probably no one else could. Cause it's not you, it's not your delivery. It's not your humor. It's not your experience. Um, that's, that really opens you up to like to more. And then, the fear a lot of people have like, what if I run out of funny things or premises? It's like, keep heading towards you, keep heading towards like who you want to be on stage or like the, the person that 
is funny to your best friend or, or whatever you're like your siblings and stuff like that person who's just effortlessly can just be funny and not think about it. Like get that's your, your goal is to be that guy on stage and have the audience mm -hmm. feel like they're the best friend or the sibling or the girlfriend or whatever within like a minute or two. And then it's you won't, you're not going to have problems with premises or, or, or any of that. You'll still have to write and make it good. But, <laughs> um, I've never heard it put that way that, you know, a couple of minutes in, you should feel like you're having a conversation with, with somebody who really knows you. That's really smart. I mean, that's, that, if, you, if you can get to that point, you're going to have a great set. You just are, and you're ready to have fun. You've meditated or yeah. whatever it is. You need to get to that space. Yeah. It's going to be a good set. I don't know how one-liner comics do it or like character comics or whatever. I mean, that's a yeah. whole different ball game. And sure. I, you know, I've never, I've never been that way, but that, I mean, that's something that I really learned at the comedy store. Like it, that place, especially when it was bad, that place fucking forced you to be yourself. It just, it made performing material, you know, in front of like seven people or the other comics, it made it feel so uncomfortable because you're like, this is not natural. And it just made you <laughs> become more conversational. And you could see it with other comics, like when they got past, when they were getting late spots and early spots and like, it just, they found new ways to get into jokes and you know, this stuff that the mechanics are there, the setups and the punchlines, but sometimes you don't even notice it because it's like, they're so fluid. Like Doug Stanhope is incredible at that. I mean, he's incredible at everything in comedy, but like, he is so conversational, but he's got the jokes are in there, but he is so fluid. And it's like, sometimes you're like, is this written out? Or are you just saying this? Like I, you, you know, like, and then you see it again and you're like, Oh fuck. You know, like you're, he's just, he's so conversational, you know, and that, I mean, he's got 30 years in the game and doing the road and all, all different kinds of rooms and like, yeah, I mean that that's a great guy to watch. If you if you want to do like conversational comedy like Stanhope, Chappelle, you know, guys like that are like our masters of just like he's just talking, you know, like it's really just how it feels. Here's something that that like Drew and I do in our room now quite a bit. Uh we stack the deck a little bit in that we put two tops in the front row so we know they're all dates for the most part. So then it allows you to kind of get into your relationship material, but that doesn't matter like wherever in comedy, there's going to be people on dates, you know, call those people out on dates and then you can segue into relationship material as just as a starter way to really get into that conversational habit uh, yeah. is something that I think we, we take advantage of in our room. Yeah. I think I do think starting with crowd work helps me connect, be more connective. And if you start in that tone, it kind of helps me stay in that in that space where that other than coming out with a cold with just like material right off the gate, you you, you could kind of like miss the opportunity to connect um, if you're, you know, and this is Brian and I are not like 20 year veterans. Um, so we're still figuring it out what works for us to get to get us in the sweet spot. And that's been really fun for us lately to just lean into that. Yeah, I'll bet. I mean, yeah, those that like, those sorts of like experiments are like, that's, yeah, that's how you figure it out. You know, like talk to the couples or, you know, talk to even a single person and like, you know, it's, as long as it's a human being, they've been in a relationship <laughs> at some point or wanted right. one or just got out of one. And, you know, then it's like, yeah. And then like learning to kind of think quicker and be like, how do I segue in a way that's not forced? And like, mm -hmm. that's, yeah, all that stuff is like, that's the fun of it. That's the part. Those are the parts where you're like, I got to remember to have fun and just sort of like 
let myself, you know, walk into the bit in a way I didn't yesterday or even on the first show. It's like, that's the stuff that makes it like, you know, feel like, uh, this is a fucking live show for me too. It's happening right now. You know? Yeah. That feels good. I know we're pushing up against almost needing to wrap up, but before we wrap up, I did want to ask one quick thing about your, the writing that you do for the magazines. How did, um, is that something that you had a skill with, uh, separately from the stand-up, or is that something that stand-up kind of got you that opportunity? And and what kind of training, or or what have you done to to become a better writer for for those kind of things? I just I've always liked that sort of writing. I like like essay writing and journalistic writing and stuff. And like I've always just gravitated to that sort of thing as like a like a fan of it. I guess I just like read, reading it and. At, in 2014, I was putting out my first album and I had a podcast called Occasionally Awesome that did pretty well. And uh, Occasionally? Yeah, yeah. Occasionally. Um, yeah we, we were like, well, let's not lie to the people. So we'll give them like a really honest name. Um, and this writer for Esquire magazine wanted to, he was a listener. He listened to the podcast and saw that I had an album coming out. He was like, hey, and I was doing a vinyl uh, release for it too. He thought that was really cool. And he was like, I want to profile you for the magazine as like the, the profile ended up being like the most stylish comedian we know was like the whole gist of it. And they talked to me about like my style and this and that. And, and then they, you know, promoted the the album and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, a, I was like super honored to be like, you know, it's a magazine that's like a fucking American institution, you know, it was like crazy. And I was like, well, if they like me and my thing and like what I do represents the magazine, I was like, I'm going to ask if I can write for it. And I just asked, I asked them, I was like, Hey, can I contribute to the magazine? I, I would love to branch my writing out into this stuff. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. Like, what, would you have any ideas you want to pitch us? And I pitched them a few things. And then there's just next thing, you know, I'm like writing stuff and dealing with an editor and getting notes and going, you know, and I really liked, I liked it because there were topics I could get into that I knew a comedy audience was just going to be like, Oh my God, we don't want to hear about the band Radiohead for fucking 12 minutes or whatever, you know? <laughs> so it was a good outlet. And I just kind of, I would do that whenever I had ideas that I wanted to, you know, um, sort of flesh out in a, in a form that wasn't stand up. And then Brooklyn Magazine, I've done more stuff for them lately. Um, the same kind of thing. The editor knew who I was as a comedian already. And we got to talk and he's like, I'd love some pitches, you know, if you have stuff. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's just like a fun other thing I can, I can do. Yeah. Um, and you're a big nineties. You have a lot of music and a lot of references to nineties music and stuff like yeah. that. So that, that's a fun, sweet spot to write about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it's yeah. I, I've written about the band uh, tool a bunch cause they're my favorite band. Um, so I've written like a bunch of pieces for Esquire on, on them and on Maynard himself. Um, and that kind of stuff is great because like, I'm 39. So a lot of people that grew up in the nineties like me are kind of at that age where they're getting a little nostalgic or they're, you know, they read those magazines and like when they're watching comedy, they're like, Oh fuck. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it like, uh, it's, it's fun in a way I couldn't have when I was younger. Cause I would oftentimes be performing to crowds that were older and they're just right. like, I don't know your references or, you know? Um, so yeah, it's all, you know, they're all, challenges and sometimes it's a little easier and more fun than other times and 
Um, but then the magazine thing, I'm like, I'm very lucky. I get to, I get to do that. I think it's like, I think it's a really fun thing. And again, just another thing to try. It's like, you're, you know, it doesn't all have to be one thing. It doesn't have to be like, I'm a writer, I'm a stand up, I'm a this. And it's more so now than ever with like stuff like this, these podcasts and, um, you know, do it all and fucking have fun and try new things and work hard and be nice to people. And then one day you'll die. So I guess it's to our I guess it's to our last segment. Great transition there. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Hold on. Okay. So it's called Last Laugh. Uh what you gotta do is come up with the last joke that you'll have uh on your tombstone to be remembered by. It could be your joke, anybody's joke, don't matter. What's it gonna be? Ooh. That's a good one. There are two bit. I don't, I'm not a big like one-liner person. And I know a tombstone is better. So this tombstone is going to be like super <laughs> tall, you know, it's going to be like two sure. stories. Um, two bits I really, I've always loved and I, I'm having trouble picking, but they're on, um, on Bill Hicks's relentless album. There was a bit on, um, the, uh, Jim fix the healthcare, the health guy that was died while running. And then he uh, does a Yule, Yule Brenner parallel. And, uh, and it's about like, you know, you don't, yeah, healthy people die too. And that kind of thing. It's just so brilliantly and effortlessly, like he goes from A to B and back and forth. It's just like so well done. Um, that one. And there's a bit that Louis CK used to do um, on being broke. And it yes. was uh, about how the banks take money from you when you're yes. broke. And when you're rich, they give you money. I mean, it's just, it's, um, it's like a perfect bit. He gets the ins and outs of like, of everything and just takes you on this fucking like ride from beginning to end. And then if it's um, free, if it's free, I can't afford it. That's, yeah. That's it's, that's yeah. too much for me. Yeah. yeah like yeah. that kind of stuff, the yeah. word play in there. It's like that. That's like when I first heard that bit, you know, you really love a bit when you're like, fuck, I wish I wrote that. You know, it's like, yeah. like one of those things, but, um, and I always reference it to people. I was, if people like go, oh, I haven't listened to much of Louis Sika, I just send them that bit. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. just, and it's relatable to everybody. Everyone had no money at some point, you know, at least most people had no money at some point, you know, um, <laughs> but and I love it. And I've been in that exact position, you know, and it's like, it just like, it, it still makes me laugh too. I still, I'll listen to that bit when this podcast is over. Actually, I'm going to put it on and listen to it. Um, so, you know, what? I'm going to go with that one. I like the Bill Hicks one a lot, but, I clearly like the Louie one more. So I'm going to go with that one. Very cool. Well, let's do this. We'll wrap. Uh, how do people find you uh, on the, in the world? Um, well, I, I don't really use Twitter anymore. I just like use it to post road dates and stuff. So that's like, going to be boring for anyone going to that. I use Instagram a lot and that's uh, at N I C K Y O U S S E F. Um, or go to my website, same spelling, nickyousef.com. And then, There'll be links to everything there. There you go. And uh, I have a podcast called According to Nick Youssef, A-T-N-Y. And that's everywhere you get podcasts. And um, there's a Patreon link to that too. Um, But I would go there. If you want to be up to date on stuff, Instagram, podcast, and and website. Um, I got a TikTok, but I'm I'm not using it that as much as I should yet. But um, but yeah, those those are the ones. Well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time uh, on your trip to to speak with us today about comedy. Uh, so much fun. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for having me. And and 
to the to, to any listeners that haven't been to a riot show, uh, go! <laughs> so fun. I was so surprised by how you guys are like you 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 run a great show. The layout's awesome. You guys pay. You guys are fucking. You you pick me up from the airport. Or fucking, yeah, like, you know, that kind of stuff is like. You guys run a good room, man. It's I, I tell people this a lot. Like there's there's your big comedy club in town, but there are awesome independently run shows that are are just great from beginning to end. And you guys, you guys got a good thing going, man. And I Thanks can't so wait to come back. Yeah, we, we awesome. love to have you back. And uh, thank you so much for the praise, man. We appreciate it. Hey, totally. safe safe travels, Nate. Yep. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for listening to Breaking Down Bits. You can keep in touch or get more when you follow at Breaking Down Bits on social media. Visit the website BreakingDownBits.com or shoot us an email at BreakingDownBits at gmail.com.